This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 53, with guest Gemma Kamabea. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Sovorova, and welcome to today's episode. How can you reduce your ecological footprint and increase your next vacation budget? The answer is simple, by buying and selling only used furniture. Gemma Komabea is the co-founder and CEO of Kokoli, a marketplace for used furniture and interior design pieces. Before Kokoli, she was building global fashion and consumer brands like Zalando, L'Oreal, the Stia Collective and Showroom, and was running furniture platform May.com as the managing director for the Dach region in 2019. Today we speak about why it's about time that we reinvent the way we find, buy and reuse furniture and why best businesses are created and made stronger out of a downturn. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. In the meantime, join me for the conversation with Gemma. Gemma, welcome to the studio. It's a pleasure to have you here today and welcome you in the heart of Kreuzberg. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. I would like to start with a topic which is very close to your heart, and it's e-commerce. And e-commerce was something that I felt when I was reading about you, reading your interviews, understanding your background. I felt that your heart was always beating for it, right? Tell me how it all got started and how you got yourself into e-commerce and built, you know, in this whole industry, like from scratch. Actually, you probably noticed from my accent, I come from Spain. And I did my last year of university in Cologne. And it was when I was in Germany, in Cologne, where I noticed that e-commerce was such more advanced than in Spain. In Spain, there was no one was talking about e-commerce. We were at university. There was not one single class about e-commerce, about what SEA was, what SEO, what's affiliation. No clue. And I came here and it was a, boof, a big new world. Mm -hmm. So I was very excited about that. I nevertheless went back to Spain after my studies because I already had a contract signed with L'Oreal. So I started working there, but I always wanted to come back. And uh, it, I was very excited to, I wanted to deep dive much more into what e-commerce was, about the companies that they were here. And then, yeah, I was lucky enough that Zalando was launching at the time. And I was able to then leave Spain finally to move to Germany. And yeah, I'm um, 12 years now I'm already mm -hmm. in Germany. Impressive. But before that, you also mentioned that um, you worked more with L'Oreal and it was difficult for you for, to transition in a way to something which is less tangible than versus something which is actual retail shops. Yes. And not only for me, I, I remember when, when I got the offer to move to Germany for Zalando and I was telling my family, hey, look, I'm going to go into e-commerce. I mean, I'm going to go to sell uh, fashion online. And my family was, you're crazy. I mean, why would you leave like established company as L'Oreal is to go to online? No one will ever buy online. You know, people want to touch the items, the clothes, they want to try it on. It's a cultural thing. It will never work out. So I actually, against what all my family told me, I said, I need to try it out. I'm going to go, left my family, my friends in Spain and decided to move because I really loved it. I loved the idea. I was so sure that was going to be the next big thing and, and I wanted to be part of it. Yeah, but you also then launched it in Spain. So how was the reaction locally? Well, at the time uh, we started, we launched Salando in the Spanish market. And of course, if you compare it to other markets, maybe it was not the, big, the biggest market. 
but you've seen the growth. It's been spectacular. It's an extraordinary company. And it's been like this across all the markets. And now Telando in Spain is also uh, the biggest player. Amazing. You see, uh, you totally proved to your family and maybe a bit of the other mentality or the mindset towards e-commerce wrong by uh, proving with amazing service that you brought uh, to your home country. So applause to you. And it's also interesting, your story with Cocoli, because you worked later on at Vistia Collective, which is a global online marketplace for desirable pre-loft fashion. Later on, also Made.com, which is furniture and home accessories e-commerce company, so you were always in e-commerce from all different maybe perspectives and variations of it. But was it this combination of those particular two companies that inspired you to found your own company, Cocoli, the online store for pre-loved design furniture and decor? So this was something I was asking myself. Was it the case that was a moment when that sparked your curiosity to found your own e-commerce company? Yeah, it actually was a personal need. So I had just had my second kid. Mm -hmm. I was in maternity leave. And on top of the, all the stress of having a new kid, I decided to move places. So we had newborn, we had a new place, and I just didn't have time to buy furniture. And the furniture from the old flat would not all fit. I also had uh, some that I need to sell. I didn't, it went like always too much at the time. And I also saw furniture that I loved, but they, actually, there was one lamp, this lamp that I was so obsessed with. I wanted it for years. And I was, okay, now I move, I'm going to buy this lamp. But the seller was in Rockstock. I was like, oh God, how I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to organize now to pick up this lamp. And uh, I actually contacted the seller and said, hey, would you send it to Berlin? And he told me, no, it's too much. You know, it's too complicated. It's a lamp. It's like, it's, it was a design lamp, so it may get damaged. I was like, oh my God, how can there not be at that time? I was like, why is there no Vestia Collective for furniture? And then... Which year is that? That was uh, one and a half, two years ago. That's a good question. Why is there? There was none. I mean, there was specialized, though. So there was, of course, the, the uh, typical, like, if you go eBay, right? Or client saga that you go and pick it up. But the question was, okay, also, how can I find this design furniture? And not vintage. doesn't need to be vintage. It, I just wanted a cool contemporary design lamp. And I wanted this one. And there was no one that was going to bring it to me. And it was just unbelievable that this didn't exist. So that's how how everything started. And then I actually contacted um, one of my, my good friends, Greta, who I also, we studied together. We actually worked together at L'Oreal. And I was like, Greta, this doesn't exist. How can that be? And then <laughs> she we started actually doing some uh, focus group and trying to understand if the market was big enough and why, why there was no play. It just didn't make sense for us. Yeah. So um, we started analyzing, talking to a lot of people, understand how the size of the market, understand if there was a potential, was there an opportunity to go through that? One of the first questions that came to our mind is, why did Vestia Collective didn't do it? Right. So I did kind of call the founder of Vestia Collective, one of them, Christian, who has the operation, used to have the operation hat and logistics. And one of my first questions was to understand the complexity, right, of operations, which was probably one of the main reasons why Vestia didn't go into this. Mm -hmm. But then I told, okay, Christian, you know, I have the experience. I've been at May.com. We've been doing all that. We're going to make this happen. And then he told me, then I'm going to be part of your story. Wow. So that's how Christian, the Vestia Collective founder, is part of the founders of Cocoli 2. 
impressive. So you were doing kind of the market research, but by your questions and your enthusiasm, they were like, well, actually, we want to be part of that. Yes, not only that, then actually at the same time, there was Julian, who's the Mate.com founder, who had the same idea. They knew the struggles because the struggle is not only for private people. There's a huge struggle for businesses. Mm -hmm. So what happens with all the items that are returned that has slight damages or what happens with any kind of showroom piece or discontinued item or, you know, what happens if you buy a sofa and this company brings you the sofa? What happens with your old sofa? Mm -hmm. Companies cannot take care of it, but they are actually they need to take care of it. So there was a huge opportunity business-wise too, to tackle this. And Julian had the same idea. And I mean, we knew each other from Mate. So we just talked to each other and said, let's join forces and do it together instead of me doing one company and you doing a second one. That's how Julian entered uh, also the Cocoli founding team. So now by then we were three, yeah, uh, with me four. But we knew that operation was going to be very hard. And Christian lives in Paris. He has also a company. So he was a, as a mentor. Yeah, Julian was also not located in Germany. So he was not going to join full time. He was going to work half time with us. So I knew I needed someone very strong in the operations part. Therefore, I contacted Frank, whom I knew from Talando. And he was uh, responsible for the warehouses, the return centers. He had more than 25 years of experience in operations, supply chain and, and transport. So... I talked to Frank. I said, Frank, you're the best person I can imagine to lead this part of the of the whole logistics. So that's how then Frank was on the game too. Dream, dream team. Yes, it was uh, actually awesome because I used to work with all of them before. So we had a, a personal but a professional relationship too. And it's very difficult. I think most of the times while, while startups fail, it's because founders don't know each other and they've never worked together. And it's very difficult. You work much more than eight hours a day. It's like you can't somehow marry all of them, right? I think it's very difficult if, if you don't know these people and how it's going to work and never met them before to build a company. Interesting, yeah. So it was important for me to to meet them all, to know them also, and uh, that's how they all entered. And finally, there was uh, we knew we could not work with this platform that already existed in the market because it was pretty complex. We needed direct connection to brands, to warehouses. We needed links to banks because uh, a seller sells something, but the money from the buyer has to be somewhere until it's paid to the seller, right? In order to security, so it was pretty complex, and we needed a uh, own platform, a own product, yeah, that we call it. And that's how Stefano, our CTO, came to the game, who's our, he's a developer himself and could understand very good the business part together with the implementation of features and the platform itself. This is so impressive. I mean, this is a truly a dream team, but what do you, Gemma, see in your founders and investors? What do they bring to the table or what you wanted them ultimately to bring to the table when you had the idea in your mind? Yeah. So I knew what my strengths are. Yeah. And I needed people that were smarter than me. In, what are your strengths? I can be a good networker, right? I'm actually good in the data-driven part, in much more the analyticals, but I don't have the connections directly with the warehouses. Oh, I'm not expert on, on design, on curation, on inspirational part, and I cannot develop. Right. So I need a team that was better, smarter than me, and that I could fully trust. And so each of us would focus in our expertise. Same with Angel. So when we decided to do a first pre-seed fund or uh, investment, right, we, we looked for money before we launched Cocoli. 
And I was sure we had to go with angels and uh, at that time, not with funds, because we really cared about this, what's called smart money. So we wanted to bring not just the investment, but we wanted to know the, bring the know-how and people that would truly understand you. So uh, how it all started is I kind of connected to people that knew me, that used to work with me before and or the different founders of the team. Yeah, and then I would get them and these people would actually somehow sponsor me, right? Because they've worked with me before. And remember at that time there was COVID. I mean, I could not see anyone. So I was behind my screen trying to explain my passion and my why I believe this was going to be the next big thing and how we're going to make it happen. But sometimes difficult because you're talking to someone and then suddenly there's this icon that you get an, uh, like uh, a message and then your email comes in and then, you know, you, you get distracted. Absolutely. Uh, so was, was at the time was difficult, but getting these investors, these angels that were sponsoring me made it easier to make the round bigger and mm. they would get their friends in the round and they would say, hey, I'm sure I put like in Spain, you would say I put my hand in fire. So I, I'll. That's yeah. It's a bit, a bit crazy. Tough, tough, tough. Spanish. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you, I so much can you know. I support this person. I know her, and I can really tell you that she will make it happen. So that actually makes people trust you, yeah. and that's how things, how how everything started. Wow, this is this is super impressive, and I actually I think wrote you also earlier that I found myself with a question realizing that there was no such platform if not you then who because you have that perfect network you had your personal like experience with not having this beware furniture available and I felt like okay Gemma she's born to start this and to challenge the status quo but that also comes to the question of status quo you know why do you felt that you need to strive and create change and not just settle for the traditional retailers that we have and build on top of the traditional retailers that are already existent and not settling with that, but completely, you know, questioning and pushing this new platform into the space. So as it came from a personal problem mm -hmm. I had, I knew what, what I wanted to do and I knew this, the solutions that were currently in, in Germany, but I would say it's not only Germany, it's in Europe, were not enough. I knew we needed a service marketplace. So I don't want to take care of packing my sofa. I want someone to do that for me. So I knew it had to be service marketplace. I knew I don't have time to spend hours and hours looking for something. It needed to be curated. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to trust the platform that you as a seller, what you're going to sell me, it's what I expect. So I, it needed a quality check at one point. So there was these three main USPs that they were like serviced, curated, and quality checked that needed to happen in order to resell or pre-loft mm -hmm. furniture. Indeed. And why did you feel that you were the right person to do this? Because you were, this is the first time you were a founder. And before you were working more in this larger companies where you had a lead role, where you had lots of resources, it's a different ball game versus, you know, becoming an early stage startup founder and doing everything from scratch. Why did you feel like this is your new role and you felt comfortable with that? Yeah, it's true. I used to work for much bigger companies. But if you think about my background, I've always worked in building something from scratch in a bigger company. Yeah. So when mm. I was at Zalando, they were launching Spain. Spain didn't exist. 
When I started at Vestia Collective, I launched the German, Austrian, Swiss market. So they didn't even have a website translated into German. It was from scratch. So it's true that I was working in bigger corporates, but I always had a very entrepreneurial role inside the big ones. Mate was a different story. When I already arrived with Mate, it was already big uh, and I already like got a big team that was already working and it was just how to keep on growing yeah, in a, in a, in a faster speed. But I always had this entrepreneurial in my veins. I always wanted to build something from scratch and I knew both worlds. I knew very well the world of um, secondhand. I knew very well furniture and I've been working the last 12 years in marketplaces. So it was natural for me having an amazing team that told me I'm going to join it was a no-brainer. I had to go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also feel that you're a very hands-on person, as we see. And then you even wrote that better things done than perfect, which I found was very interesting because sometimes founders are reluctant to do something because they want to everything to be perfect and all the stars to be aligned. But the life is never like this. So with your own company, Kokoli, how was it like? Did you just kick off the project and you felt like, okay, let me compile things that let, you know, let me talk to a couple of people and see how it goes? Or you followed like an ironed out plan before starting it? How was it for you? You can imagine there was no iron plan <laughs> <laughs> going on. We just were had hypotheses. It started all with Greta, right? And Greta and me had hypothesis of how big this market was, how many, what would people really care about? Yeah, How important was the sustainability angle? How do we communicate? Because I also feel a lot of people talk about sustainability, but that they cannot really put that into clear actions. You know, it's like even CO2 or, you know, it's it's generic terms, but what does that bring? So we were really discussing, we had this hypothesis and we started trying. We also, when we started selling supply, I mean, I had my, my expertise of why I believe each category, some categories were going to sell better than others. But was it the same for secondhand? No, so we had to try. We had to try a lot. We, need, we had to see how the market was acting or was reacting to what we were actually showing. And it was a bit of uh, learning by doing with, of course, the expertise that we all bring already to the table. It's not the same someone that's just started, right? That someone that's already been working in this area in, for the last 12 years. Which are the categories from reused furniture and homeware you think are the most popular, the ones that will really skyrocket? I mean, the categories, furniture, there's a lot of categories from the big items, right? Like, for example, you think about tables or bookshelves. sofas. Bookshelves. I'm looking for one. <laughs> yeah. So th that's actually categories. The, the issue you always need to, to think about is like for secondhand, there's some items that cannot be disassembled. Hmm. Yeah. So logistic-wise, it's not as easy, for example, to move a bookshelf than to move a sofa or to move a table or a chair. So I think those are the categories that can really accelerate much more the growth together, for example, lamps, right? Because a lot of people want to buy something more designy, more premium, and a lamp is something that you can afford and that changes a lot the, the area where you're living. That's true. Yeah, I was asking myself because I was actually checking the website and was scrolling through and found a couple of items that I thought, yeah, I would have this, you know, I would I would order this. This is something um, I would probably prefer over buying a new item. And also the prices were very attractive. I think that's the main driver looking at inflation right now and the rising prices. You start thinking now twice before buying a new things. 
plus the fact that there's just lack of materials. At Copic, that was very clear. I mean, we had to wait in average 14 to 16 weeks to receive an item. And we deliver in seven days because the item is already produced. So it's cheaper, it's quicker, and on top you are, you're just making sure that the world doesn't reuse additional materials, right? That we reuse what already exists. So it has a sustainability, circularity aspect to it. Since you're speaking of that, I wanted to ask you if you can explain what is beware, homeware, but also what are the effects of furniture waste today on the environment? Because I don't have full visibility. I don't have numbers right now. But just to understand, how does this furniture waste look like worldwide and also in Germany? It's huge. So there's three areas how of furniture affects the circularity or, the, or this, how can we improve the sustainability, right? On the one hand, there is the, the fact that when you buy something new, you need to produce the materials. You need to get the materials from earth. Yeah, the wood and metals, plastic production. All of that has a, like a, it has a production cost, like a sustainability cost linked to it, right, of the material. So on the one hand, there's this. On the second hand, there is the fact that you buy a new one instead of buying a reused one, you are making sure that there's less items arriving to the landfill. There's 15 billion tons of of, uh, furniture that every year goes to the landfill. And by buying reuse, you can reduce these amounts, right? So it improves. And the third one is in order to produce furniture, and many people don't think about it, it's not all produced in Germany. If you buy the wood, you'll probably get it from Poland. If you buy the if it's ceramics or textiles, it may come from Portugal. Metals may come from China or Vietnam. And there is a carbon footprint linked to bringing all these materials to the area where the item will be put together. Yeah. So there's three aspects that by buying secondhand, you are supporting, that is reduction of materials, reduction of landfill waste, and reduction of carbon footprint because of the material transport. Wow, this is impressive. So there we see a a direct impact on sustainability and actually positive changes to the environment by, you know, using, basically buying and selling furniture, right? Exactly. And this is exactly our main or our focus currently Mm. is to put numbers into it. So even if I tell you this is this is the reduction of, I don't know, how many cubic meters, you know, it's like, what does that mean? People don't understand in tax how many reduction of liters of water, but can you imagine what that means? Or what is 15 billion tons? Right, yes, of course. You need visualization, you know, maybe like a size of a Comparison or, yeah. So currently our main focus for next year is actually educate even ourselves, right? So educate, how exactly does this mean? How you can materialize this? And I think that people would understand much quicker how much they're supporting the environment, how much solution, how much positive change there is if just because you don't buy new. So now you launched in Germany. How come Germany and other markets coming up? Um, We're in Germany, first of all, because it's the market we know the best. It's a bit weird me saying that being Spanish, but I've been living here forever. I've been working here for the German market. I knew it very well. It's a very amazing market. It's very big. And the good thing of Germany is that there's a lot of markets that are good in sellers and some are good in buyers. Yeah, For example, Italy is an amazing supply country, but they're not so good into buying. Well, Germany has a 50-50 share. 
So it was a very smart market to actually do the first test to prove the concept. Therefore, it did make sense for us to stay here. Other next markets, we do have a very scalable model. But when we will go into next market, it's not yet decided. Yeah, super exciting. And I think the part where you said with visualizing this, I think this will create such an impact for people to understand. I think sometimes we are a bit spoiled with the access to IKEA and making things so easy with buying and then getting rid of this furniture because it's also costless, right? But when you have something that has maybe more heart and soul in it, such as vintage or designed items that are reused, you know, it can have second, third lives and so on and so forth. So hopefully this will also educate and drive change. I'm very excited for the mission you're after. There's also something you said that the best businesses are created and made stronger out of a downturn, very relevant to today and what's happening in the economy. You know, why do you feel very strongly about building Cockley in this particular circumstances? And with that statement, do you also apply that statement to yourself? Yeah. I mean, when it all started, we were not in a recession, but we had COVID. <laughs> and now we just left COVID to enter a recession. So if Cocoli goes over all that, it's going to go over and, you know, we can go over anything. You say like this, like you can accelerate. Yes, and, yeah. uh, so nothing worse comes after this, hopefully, right? Exactly. <laughs> so that was the idea. I do think also personally, it's very important, especially if you are a founder. There's a lot of people that will come to you and they tend to see problems. You know, everyone sees, and it's fair. I mean, people challenge you and it does make sense. It helps you a lot. You cannot let them drown you. You know, there's going to be challenges, of course, but there's also opportunities linked to these challenges. And the companies that have hard times to go for one challenge and they find a solution, then they make stronger because they found a solution that no one else was able to do. Yeah? And I think that's very important in everything. I, I liked it at, for Cocoli. I mean, finding our first funding yeah, that was already above 1 million, even before having a project, having it before having anything, proof of concept. Yeah, and people that really believed and saw the same vision that we did was already amazing step for us. Now, the fact that how we're growing and how much demand, the market, the amount of items, we have uh, more than 75,000 items already after nine months in the market. You know, we do see all these challenges that people come to you, but that's what I say. The strongest also businesses are made when there's a downturn because you will see the opportunity and then you can grow out of it. What are your opportunities? I mean, going into the recession, it's very difficult to talk about opportunities. But what do you see? Like this upcoming months, half a year, what do you want to tap into? Currently, a recession, of course, it's super hard times. A lot of people are struggling and there's a lot of increase of cost. But we should also see the huge opportunity there is in secondhand. So for example, maybe this is a good moment to start reselling some of the items that you maybe don't need and you can actually cash out a bit out of here. There's also an opportunity if you need something new, you can buy it for a much cheaper price, right? So we're offering from minus 50 to minus 70% of the original price. And on top, you're actually supporting someone else that will re-being resell the item. I think from a, a recession point of view, there's also a lot of opportunities on how also people decide how they're going to live the fact that people go sometimes just decide to go somewhere else to live and what do you do with your furniture and how do are you moving are you not you know this idea of not having to throw things away or something that you don't need maybe the treasure from some, for someone else 
And that's what how I see it, like this circularity as, as a huge opportunity uh, in the furniture. Absolutely. It makes like uh, it all meant to be in perfect timing. So and ambitious, what are your ambitions coming up? And I'm also curious, uh, you mentioned already that so there's a team growing. What's ahead? And are you also guys hiring? So currently we are closing our next round which is very exciting. We are in the in the process of, of fundraising, which is very intense, but also very, it's, I would say, one of the coolest times because it's when I tell you a lot of challenges come to the table. Yeah? And also a lot of people that would say, no, I don't believe on this because X, Y, Z. And then you need to prove wrong and you find the solution. So currently where we stand, we close the round and then we're going to keep on growing with supply. That's our first area, not to make sure that we acquire the best supply in the market to actually then be able to offer it to the demand. And of course, we will need support so of, of new team members that hopefully very soon, as soon as, as we close it. Okay, exciting, exciting. So there's some work ahead to do <laughs> and some teams to grow. So this is great. And all of this you're balancing alongside three children. Correct. I am amazed. Are they distracting you or they're small supporters of you? No, they're all in. I remember the first day I came from the notary and we had uh, had built or we had signed the, the creation of the Gembeha. My daughter came with a unicorn and told me, Mama, that's cockoli. The unicorn was got wow. cockoli and I loved it. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's, that's the way to go. But I love that. That's that's the. I mean, that's the best support when you see that. I mean, it makes more fun. Totally. Maybe they even in the future can participate in one way or the other in building the company. They're totally big supporters of Cocoli. You always see them because, of course, sometimes we just move some of the furniture to we need to move them around and we need to keep them. It's a startup. We keep them home or to the garage. And then they just what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they're all in. And I think they, they love this excitement and being seeing myself. Right. I think if the kids see the parents so excited, I hope that's something I also transmit this passion like do something that you're really passionate about. And mm -hmm. I hope that's something I, they see on me and that they will keep and they will really try to live their dreams. Do you wish for them to be also entrepreneurs one day? I wish them to be happy, whatever that takes, whatever, how that is. Yeah, interesting. And were you influenced in any way to become an entrepreneur by your upbringing? Hmm, that's actually a good question. So yes and no, I would say that my dad used to work on a, in a company that grew a lot. Uh, yeah, so he was one of the first one and led the company uh, across in, in Spain. Mm -hmm. So I always saw this entrepreneurial mindset. But on the other hand, I think those times were also a bit different than now, right? There was not really work-life balance. I barely saw him. He was working a lot and I, I didn't really understand what was happening or what was going on. So yes, I think somehow there is that behind, but it's not the entrepreneurial life we have nowadays or how you see or how I, I would like that to be or how to develop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, times have changed, but sometimes I also find inspiration looking uh, back at the family and how, how much they were able to build and create. And you feel like there's only a step forward to continue that momentum and building and challenging, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, the previous things that how they were built and created. I always have a question where I'm always curious to get to know who is the woman role model and who is the North Star? Well, maybe North Star is very boldly said, but let's say a woman author of achievement that is for you, Gemma. And have you had such a person in your life and have this person also changed as you grew up? Since very young, I've been very interested in a lot of entrepreneurial women. So 
it's not I can give you one only name, you know, that someone that carried on. There's a lot of people that that I would consider role models. And these questions, how I normally answer is, if you think about a CEO, who would you think? And I believe most of the people would think of males. I don't. I see so many amazing entrepreneurs. I think of Tina Mula. I think about Fanny Moison of Vestia Collective, Nicola Thompson at Made.com. No, and there's so many women that are entrepreneurs or they're CEOs or founders of companies. And all of them bring something to the table that they made it easier for the new ones to join. And that's super exciting. And I hope at one point they can also support more women to start the path. Yes, that's absolutely the case, and which is happening already today. I mean, you also were, I guess, inspired by being there and by adding your stake to those companies and now inspired to start something yourself. And then someone listening to the podcast and then they will be probably kicking off their next idea the day after. I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> and that's the intention. Gemma, this is such a great conversation. I'm very thankful that you joined me on this note and to share more about Kokoli and about your mission with it. I'm absolutely blown away by what an impact it can create, I think, in this world. And what are you and the team are up to? And I think there's many good news. I'm sure it's good news coming up very soon and that people can learn more. And hopefully we all can continue create and also grow stronger, even despite the recession and downturn. And there's always, we see a light in the end of the tunnel. So at least with this episode, that's the spirit I've got. Thanks very much. It was amazing to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.